All right, well, let's return to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, and we will continue with this most intriguing passage that we began with last week, and it's actually going to take us, I think, three weeks total to work through this very, very important passage. John chapter 12. In Christian homes and gatherings spreading across the Roman Empire after his ascension, many stories were told in memory of Jesus of Nazareth. The evangelists selected certain stories, sermons, and extracts from the life of Jesus in order to give us four portraits of the most important person who had ever lived. But they didn't always tell the same stories. In fact, only two told of Jesus' birth. And prior to Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, only once did all four Gospels tell the same story, the feeding of the 5,000. And even in the final week, very few stories can be found in all four Gospels. Judas' betrayal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll commemorate today, Peter's denial, and of course, Jesus' death and resurrection are common to all four Gospels. But so too is the story of Jesus' donkey ride. When all four Gospels converge on the same story, you know this is really significant. Why are they all telling this particular story when there are so many stories that could be told of Jesus? So again, let's come to this account, traditionally called the triumphal entry. And let's see what it has for us today. And just as we did last week, we are going to have to sort of move our way through lots of Scripture and let all that Scripture just filtrate in and help us understand this scene. I suspect this is one of the least understood and underappreciated events in the Gospels. So John 12 and verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one, or is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now last week I made three quick observations. Let's recover them. First, Notice what John has omitted. 
In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus sovereignly orchestrated this event ahead of time. He knew that he was coming to Jerusalem to die. He had predicted his death three times. And he knew that Zechariah's prophecy of a coming king had to be fulfilled before he went to his cross. So he deliberately forced all Jerusalem to come to a verdict on Zechariah. Second, notice what John includes. At the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we became aware, as we looked at last week, that a tidal wave of opposition has been building against Jesus. In fact, it's been building all the way through John's Gospel. The Jerusalem leadership determined to execute Jesus, understand this, before he came into town on his donkey. They'd already made up their mind, they're going to execute this guy. All right? And then thirdly, notice the really important words of verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. And I dare say many Christians don't either at first. So when did it occur to the disciples that there was more going on here than first met the eye? Well, keep reading. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him, Zechariah, and had been done to him, casting the palm branches on the ground. So after his ascension, the disciples began to piece together the Old Testament, pieces like Zechariah's prophecy, and suddenly it's like, oh, we understand that all becomes clear. There's so much more going on here than people understood at first. And that's where we're really taking the time to really delve deep and understand this highly significant event. Now, let's go back in our minds to the 6th century B.C. There's a prophet who arose among the post-exilic community in Jerusalem that was struggling to rebuild the temple, that was struggling also to recover from the devastation of the Babylonian captivity. In Jerusalem, it's estimated, and all Judea or Judah had suffered a 70% decrease in population during the Babylonian deportation. And the remnant, the 30%, lived at a subsistence level. They lived in small, unwalled cities in a post-apocalyptic world. The temple they succeeded in building was a shadow of the glories of the Solomonic Temple. God's promises to Abraham and David were hollow legends, long abandoned. This prophet's name was Zechariah. And in the ninth chapter of the book that bears his name, we will find a remarkable prophecy. So let's turn there. Zechariah chapter 9. We're turning back to that post-exilic period. Before we read the passage, let me give you a little background information on Jesus' world. Not Zechariah's world, but Jesus' world. After Jesus rode his donkey to Jerusalem, there was an immediate showdown with the local temple authorities. And Jesus, for the second time in his ministry, cleansed the temple. That temple had undergone a massive reconstruction project begun before Jesus was born. 
and parts remained under construction until after Jesus died. In fact, it took approximately 76 years to complete the temple. The temple was the most beautiful and majestic building of the age. Josephus tells us that Herod employed 10,000 and up to 14,000 workers to labor on that temple. Imagine that, 14,000 people laboring on that massive, beautiful building. The platform onto which Herod built that temple is double the base area of the Great Pyramid. You know how big the Great Pyramid is? Double the base area. That's the platform and the temple sat on top. There are foundation stones on that platform that can be seen today, and they are ten times larger than the largest stones in the Great Pyramid. The temple was surrounded by a forest of pillars and covered with massive gold plates that glowed like fire on the horizon when Jews made their pilgrimages up the mountain passes, headed up there from Jericho in particular. Everett Ferguson, who was a New Testament scholar, describes the attitude of the Jew toward the temple. He writes, the temple services were considered to unite with angelic worship. An invocation of the Lord on behalf of Israel and the world. Writers interpreted the temple as a symbol of the cosmos. They understood it as holding the whole cosmos together. It's the center of our universe. So keep that image in mind and let's go back six centuries to Zechariah's day. Now, for a point of reference, that's like us going back before Christopher Columbus. We're going back quite a ways, all right? Jerusalem hovers on the brink of extinction. Her people are eking out a meager living. The glories of the Davidic kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, are buried in the rubble of a proud city. But Zechariah tells us there is a day of restoration coming. Now what would that look like? Maybe like Jesus is Jerusalem? And look at this day of restoration in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's the verse that was cited in John 12 and verse 15. That's the verse that the disciples did not understand until Jesus ascended. Well, friends, do you suppose that Jesus was aware of this prophecy? when he deliberately orchestrated a donkey ride right at the city gate. Of course he was. And the Gospels cite this passage to tell us that Zechariah was fulfilled by Jesus. It was fulfilled. So, keep reading. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, 
and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now verse 10 sounds a note of military triumph. The tribe of Ephraim lay to the north of Judah and Benjamin. It had been overrun for centuries by the thundering hoofbeats and crushing chariot wheels of many invaders. But the great king will destroy the war horses. He will cut down the archers and he will rule all the way to the ends of the earth. He will bring peace to the nations. Now, of course, Zechariah never saw this glorious day. But in the first century, the time appears propitious for the coming of a king. Would you think again of that magnificent temple? It was a wonder of the world. Jerusalem is a city worthy of a great king. And think of all those surging masses of Passover pilgrims streaming into the city. Think of those proud city gates and the great fortresses encircling the city. Jerusalem just needs a true king to enter her gates. And how about a king who has performed extraordinary miracles? How about one who just raised a dead man to life. This miracle worker has gone all over Galilee, and here's what he preached. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's at hand. And don't forget Daniel's prophecy. We looked at it last week. Daniel said there's a succession of four kingdoms coming. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will last forever, and the king will be the Son of Man. And Jesus has been calling himself the Son of Man, and Rome is the fourth kingdom. Would you say that Jesus appears ready to galvanize all Israel into action? To repel her invaders. Why else would he deliberately mount a donkey and press Zechariah's prophecy to fulfillment? I mean, what's he doing? This is very intentional. And notice the triumph that follows. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Verse 16. On that day the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. These triumphant words are directly associated with the king's donkey ride into Jerusalem. So I read them so that you really appreciate the electricity of the moment when those festal pilgrims are casting their palm branches down the street before Jesus. The king has come. Zechariah is about to be fulfilled. 
Now, with all that in place, let me give you four facts about Jesus' donkey riding. Now, I hear four facts to really help you appreciate what's going on here. Number one, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is seen riding an animal. Jesus walked everywhere. He walked all across Galilee. He just walked more than 100 miles from Caesarea Philippi down to Jericho and up the mountain passes to Jerusalem. 100 miles. Surely Jesus could walk two miles, two more miles between Bethany and Jerusalem. In fact, just recently he had walked an extra two days just to raise Lazarus. So again, can he just walk those two extra miles? Jesus chose to ride a donkey. And he is making an emphatic statement about his identity through his actions. He is forcing Jerusalem to come to a verdict. Is Zechariah's prophecy coming true or not? Fact number two. The route chosen by Jesus for his donkey ride deliberately associates him with Yahweh. Jesus' route brought him in from the east, from Bethany to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and from there right into the city. In John chapter 12 and verse 1, we learn that Jesus was in Bethany. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus had earlier come up from Jericho. And there is an ancient road into Jerusalem from the east, and it comes up over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, and it peers over the Kidron Valley, down to the valley, and then in its way, on its way right into Jerusalem. And that's the route that Jesus chose. Now in the Old Testament, the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, is frequently depicted as coming to Jerusalem from the east, the same way Jesus came. For instance, if you just skip ahead to Zechariah 14, let me show you this. Zechariah 14. The chapter begins with a scene that reminds us of Zechariah 9, where Jerusalem is surrounded by invading armies, and the Lord intervenes. Look at verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the cities shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Well, these verses describe a city under siege. This is a scene that has repeated itself numerous times since the ninth century. But would you notice in context how the Lord Yahweh comes to deliver? Verse 3. Then the Lord Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations. As when he fights on a day of battle, and on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, look across the Kidron Valley, and what you'll see there over the horizon is the Mount of Olives, right there in the east. And that's the direction from which your deliverer will come. Look to the east. Watch for a great king to arise like a flame in the east. Let's turn now to Ezekiel chapter 43. And let's notice another instance of Yahweh coming in from the east. 
Ezekiel, in fact, twice speaks of the glory of God coming to Jerusalem from the eastward direction. For instance, in Ezekiel 43 and verse 1, here's what we read. Then he led me to the gate. Well, which gate? The gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. We've all had those experiences of rising early in the morning before the sun rises, and just longing for the break of day out there on the horizon. Maybe you've been camping, and you've observed the sun just pierce across the lake in all of its glory. Well, Jesus deliberately presents himself to the city as the Messiah coming in from the very direction that we are looking for Yahweh's glory to come shining in. Jesus is the sun cresting over the Mount of Olives in all of its glory. And now let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 1 and let me give you a third fact. I told you it's going to be all over the place. All right? 1 Kings chapter 1. What I'm trying to do is give you some of the experience the disciples had. You know, after Jesus ascended, it's like they're putting the whole testament together. It's like, oh, we're getting it now. Okay, I want you to have that experience today. This is one of those aha days, like, oh, it's all coming together. In 1 Kings 1, Jesus' donkey ride deliberately associates him with the divinic monarchy. David is now on his deathbed. Conspiracies threaten the future stability of his kingdom. Absalom, David's son, is handsome and cunning and carries away the heart of the people. And he has already mounted a military coup that drove David from the city. Absalom managed to persuade much of the military to turn on David. But Absalom failed disastrously. Caught in a tree by his hair, he was pierced to the heart and slain. He was not God's chosen king to replace David. But now Adonijah, another son, would make himself king. And we read of his conspiracy beginning in verse 5. And like Absalom, he believes a military escort is a sure path to securing the throne. Verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So friends, isn't this how the worldly wise man thinks a king should come? Go get chariots and horses. Go fetch yourself a military parade and show yourself strong and worthy of the throne. That's how you do it. And notice his appearance. Like Absalom, he is handsome. He's a young prince. And perhaps he can carry away the heart of the people. But Bathsheba finds out about Adonijah's Adonijah's conspiracy and she alerts King David because she knows that Solomon is to be king. And in verse 19, here's what she says. He, Adonijah, has sacrificed oxen, fattened calf, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. 
But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord, the king, David, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king after him. So what is David to do? And again, notice Adonijah's ploy. He surrounds himself with pomp and circumstance. He calls the priest. He commands. He calls the commander of the army. That's the guy you want on your side, right? This guy leads the whole army. Get him over on my side. He stages elaborate sacrifices. But all this is pretense. He's either worthy nor chosen to sit on the throne. But again, what can David do? He's an old man on his deathbed. Well, the answer is going to come in verse 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to the Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. He shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Now there are two features of this narrative that are of particular interest. First of all is the mule. A mule is the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. It's half donkey. And like the donkey, it is a lowly beast of burden. It wasn't a magnificent war stallion. It was a menial servant. It couldn't pull a chariot into battle. It's not the sort of beast that a proud Roman emperor would ride into town in a military, in a military parade. So look at Adonijah over here. He's surrounding himself with the upper echelons of society, the warriors, the priests, and the commander of the army, and the great stallions, right? Adonijah has horses and chariots and 50 runners just charging ahead, proclaiming him to be the king. But Solomon comes riding the town on a brain mule. I mean, it's almost satirical. Like, this is actually quite funny. Solomon looks like Sancho Panza riding his donkey Dapple while his master Don Quixote goes tilting off after windmills. Remember that scene? Maybe you don't. All right? (laughs) Nevertheless, Solomon, bound in the town on this lumbering burst of bird, beast of bird, beast of bird, there we go, on this lowly mule, is the true heir of the kingdom. It's just funny to me. I mean, think about this whole army over here and all the stallions and chariots. And here's this little donkey, here's this little mule, bringing the true king into the city. All right? The second feature that you want to note is the Gihon. All right? Bring him down, it says in verse 33, to the Gihon. Now, the Gihon was a spring of water. Understand, it was outside the city. So take him outside the city and bring him in. Centuries later, Hezekiah would dig a tunnel from the Gihon into the Pool of Siloam. Perhaps you remember that as well. But what's really important is to note the direction of the Gihon Spring. It lay, guess what, to the east of the city, under the shadow of the Mount of Olives. To the east. So David essentially ordered that Solomon be taken outside the city, out to the east, and there he was to be anointed king of Israel. 
And from there he was to mount a mule and be brought into the city from the east as the true king. Now Solomon was David's chosen heir, riding into town on a lowly beast of burden. So fast forward now 1,000 years, a whole millennium, and let's actually turn to Matthew chapter 21, and let's drop in on Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21. Here comes this rider from the east. And by the way, that very morning there was a military procession that came in from the west with Pontius Pilate to mark the beginning of Passover. All the army was on the other side. But here comes this rider from the east on a beast of burden. There are no chariots, no runners, no war horses, no military commanders, no priest. Just a peasant on his donkey. But would you notice the title that the crowds ascribed to him in verse 9? And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, like Solomon, is a true king because he has an inherent blood right to the throne. This is that descendant that God promised to David in the Davidic covenant. He has a right to the throne. He is the son of David. Friends, how many times in human history has kingship been defined by military power? From Alexander the Great to Diocletian to Genghis Khan to Napoleon Bonaparte or Adolf Hitler, the right to rule has always been defined by military power. If you control the army, you deserve the throne. That's the way we think. And that's how Adonai just saw it. And that's how Genghis Khan saw it or Napoleon or Hitler. That's how they all came to power. But that's not how David saw it. And that's not how Jesus saw it. Let's go for a donkey ride. And that leads to a fourth fact. Fact number four is that God has always told his people not to trust in horses and military power, but in the living God. In fact, at this point, let's go all the way back to Joshua chapter 11. Here we'll discover the Hebrew children coming in the promised land for the first time, and Joshua is their leader. Joshua chapter 11. The people have come over Jordan, and they've experienced a great victory at Jericho. After a major setback, they were also victorious at Ai. But now Joshua and the people face their most formidable foe yet. A whole confederacy of city-state kings from the north has gathered at the behest of of a man named Jabin. Jabin is king of Hatzor. This is a city in the north. Yigiel Yadin, the great Hebrew archaeologist, excavated at Hatzor. And he claimed that the rate that he was going, it was going to take some 8,000 years to complete the excavation. This was a very large city. All right? And we read of Jabin's great force in verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde And number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Then all the kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. 
Would you be afraid? This great army is arrayed against a band of pilgrims fresh out of the desert with no chariots, horses, fortified cities, or military technologies. So what's going to happen? Verse 6. And the Lord Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mizraphoth Maim. And eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord Yahweh had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. The Lord certainly delivered. But I used to read this passage and wonder why God told Joshua to take it out on the horses. Well, understand, chariots and horses were equivalent to our modern day tanks. These were feared military weapons. And kingdoms that were rich enough to produce the metals for chariots and who could field standing armies of war horses and chariots had, had an enormous, enormous advantage. There was virtually no chance that Joshua is going to succeed and emerge victorious over such an army. But he prevailed. And the question is why? Well, it's easy. Yahweh was on his side. I mean, there is no other explanation. But when he captures the chariots, he destroys them. Then he hamstrings the horses so they could never hurl a chariot in the battle again. But again, why? Why would he do that? I mean, why didn't he just confiscate the horses and the chariots? Why not appropriate them for his own military use? If you capture a great weapon, don't you suppose you put it to use? Put it to your advantage? Well, apparently, Joshua believed that true victory still belonged to the Lord and not his fearsome weaponry. His trust was entirely in God and not in his weapons. His trust was in Yahweh. Now, unfortunately, Joshua's confidence in God was not duplicated by later rulers and kings. And as you work your way through the rest of the Old Testament, it's very interesting just to note the reliance of the Israelites on horses, and chariots. Eventually you'll find them beseeching Egypt and other nations to bring their horses and chariots to come to their rescue. True rulers, the Israelites came to believe, are great because they've got a great military. True rulers have lots of chariots, lots of horses, lots of war stallions. And Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey. So friends, can we return to John chapter 12 and really apply this truth? John chapter 12. We've been all over the Old Testament. But here comes Jesus to Jerusalem, a city prepared for our great king. In the days of the fourth kingdom, Rome. And Jesus says, and Zechariah has been fulfilled. Now, what do you think about our own country? Every four to eight years in our country, we inaugurate a new president. All over the world. 
nations inaugurate presidents or kings, for that matter. We just went through an inauguration of a king over in England. And the planning and the cost for those inaugurations are enormous. Former presidents, Supreme Court justices, important business leaders, members of Congress, religious leaders, they all attend those ceremonies. Images from inaugurations will be streamed all over the globe. America witnesses the inauguration of an individual who becomes, quote, the commander-in-chief of the most fearsome military power in the world, and in fact, in all of world history. Friends, a single bomb ejected from a single airplane in that military would pulverize any army from the ancient world. A single bomb could take out an entire army from the ancient world. A a single nuclear warhead could destroy a massive army of chariots and horses. So let's think about a presidential inauguration. Picture the nation streaming in the Washington, D.C. for an inauguration or turning on their televisions. And imagine here comes Jesus riding in the town from the east. He just gets on a donkey and rides into Washington, D.C. or into London. Would anyone even notice? Imagine he was executed. Would it even make the news or be buried under an avalanche of inauguration coverage? So I just want to know, what was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing when he came to Jerusalem and deliberately pressed Zechariah's prophecy to fulfillment? And then he goes off and dies. Well, friends, the answer is really very simple. Jesus is redefining our whole conception of kingship and the kingdom of God. If you're still thinking you've got to have a great military power, if you still think we've got to pulverize everybody the smithereens, all right, Jesus wants us to begin rethinking what is meant by the term kingdom of God and how he intends to use his great authority. Unlike all the other aspirants for the throne who came to rule and then die, Jesus came to die and then rule. And do we understand this? Well, look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, and you wouldn't have either if you read the whole Testament, especially Zechariah chapter 9. You'd be like, what's going on here? But friends, let's not get stuck with the disciples before the ascension. Follow the story through to the end of the four Gospels and right into the book of Acts, And just keep reading in verse 16. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been done and written about him. So friends, do you believe that Jesus' donkey ride was indeed a preparation for his glorification? That this somehow was indeed associated with the inauguration of the most important king who ever lived. The king who set up a kingdom which will never, ever fail. The kingdom of Daniel which is forever. Is that what's really happening here? After his glorification, he sat down on a throne. And Matthew tells us all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But friends, how does he choose to use that authority? Remember, he's redefining kingship. 
How will he choose to use that authority? That's not to say that ultimately he's not going to break all the nations with a rod of iron. He is going to do that. And he is in the process of doing that. There's no question about that. But how does he choose to display his authority? Well, you may want to turn to John chapter 17. In fact, let's all go to John chapter 17 as we prepare our hearts for communion. And in John chapter 17, we come to the final moments with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. He is about to enter dark Gethsemane, the valley of the shadow of death. And just before he leaves that room with his disciples, he prays. But he acknowledges to the Father that the hour of his glory has come. Up to now in John, he's been talking about it coming. Now he says the hour has come. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then notice what he says next. Since you have given him authority. That's what a king has. He has authority. But notice what he's going to do with his authority. You have given him authority over all flesh to grant eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, this is the first thing that Jesus wants to do with all his authority. I mean, he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. What would you do with all that authority? Here's what he wants to do. He wants to give to you eternal life. And friends, that, that's not merely a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. That, that's like an exponentially greater fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. I mean, that's like an eternal fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Overcoming his enemies and giving you new creation life from now on. From now on to the ends of all eternity. And there is no end to the new creation. Friends, this resurrected king on his donkey will indeed bring peace to the nations forevermore and forevermore. So as we go to prayer, can we just keep our Bibles open there to John chapter 17. Let me encourage you just to scan over a few verses in Christ's high priestly prayer. He prays this prayer just after he inaugurates the Lord's Supper. And he prays this prayer and then he goes down to dark Gethsemane where he's arrested and then he will be pressed through six trials, and then he will be crucified. But Jesus has just told his disciples to observe this table until he returns. So I think it would be appropriate to look over that prayer for just a moment and examine our lives and to make sure that we are still living for the King, still living in faith, believing that he is indeed resurrected and that he will indeed come again and partake of this meal again with us. This is a meal that is reserved for believers. And if you're not a believer here, I'd invite you to consider whether Jesus might be your true king.
again, unlike all other rulers who ruled and then died. Friends, Jesus died and then began his rule. Shall we turn to prayer now?